0: Hey Foundry Church, welcome to our series uh, we're doing on Proverbs here. We're really excited to jump in today and uh, I'm getting ready. uh, Let's let's just say this, let's imagine that I'm getting ready to go camping. I'm going to go up to the UP and I'm going to snow camp. All right, so I'm going to go like build a little—I don't know—snow fort or something and sleep in it. But uh, I'm going to go up there and I'm going to go snow camp. I'm going to—I'm going to have my little tent out there and I'm going to just—I'm going to get set up. And you notice like my backpack is too full to fit in uh, what I would consider an essential for survival in um, snow camping in the UP in the winter—a uh, sleeping bag right? It's, it's too full. So what if we took a minute and we evaluated what's in the bag and see if there's any non-essentials, anything that we've put into the bag that maybe just shouldn't be there. So when I take this over and I take a look at it, uh, the first thing I see is um, I brought a, a Japanese kimono because you never know when a tea ceremony is necessary in the UP. In the winter, maybe this is just, maybe I don't need it. Well, I we'll, did Yeah, that's an extra. We'll just get rid of that real quick. Um, Coffee grinder. Uh, not just a dance move, <laughs> but um, but also, uh, you know, I would say coffee's an essential, but I don't have electricity. So I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to hold off on this one. Uh, and then we have, I mean, I'm going to the UP. We're roughing it, right? So I thought, well, what's a little bit roughing it? So I thought, well, digitally roughing it would be a PlayStation One. That'd be hard. I, I just, you know, with the little memory card, if you remember this, you're old. Uh, but, 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 I don't even have the controller, so I'm going to leave this behind. So, yeah, not, probably not necessary. But, I mean, those are fairly useless snow camping items. Uh, but maybe there's some things i packed that are actually harmful. They're actually bad. So, um, I could look and, um, yeah, um, because you just never know when you want to kill a rat. So, I've got rat poison. Probably don't need that. Um, oh, oh some poorly um, stored uh, ring bologna that's got a grayish green hue that if you eat it will turn you the same color. Basically, this is bear attractant and food poisoning fodder. So probably not good for uh, the road. And it's taken up a lot of space in the bag. And when that stuff comes out, it would look to me like I should be able to take and this stuff in an essential for um, for not only saving my life, but making this not the most miserable experience ever, right? It's an essential that I wanna make sure I have room for in my pack. And here's what we know. When we look at traveling this road of life with wisdom, when we look at it, sometimes we don't have the essentials that we need packed in our bag of life because we have filled our life with things that are not only... Non essential, some of them God actually hates. Some of them are dangerous and vile according to God's view. And we need to step back and look at it and ask, what kinds of things have I prepared to take with me on my journey that are not only pointless and extra baggage, but they're dangerous and God hates them? In the book of Proverbs, Chapter um, 6, verses 16 to 19, we find a list of things that says God hates. It's this. There are six things the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up. Conflict in the community. When we look at that, we need to step back and consider this list again. That's a that's a frightening list. And you may think, well, I don't even know what a haughty eye is. I'm just glad I don't have it. But when we put it into our context, or maybe we look into um, someone's real life who had haughty eyes and who had that downward gaze, maybe we would better understand what it is and be more cautious with how quickly we move over a scripture like this and we would listen maybe a little more intentionally because we realize it's speaking most likely directly to you and I. So let's do this. Let's look at two characters, actually three characters out of the Old Testament. One is called Naboth, he's a vineyard owner. The other is the king of Northern Israel. Uh, his name is Ahab, and then his wife, who's legendarily a battle axe, Jezebel. She's a wicked woman. And those three people are who we're going to look at in this story and see if any of these detestable things are present in their lives as we go forward. It says this. Well, let me introduce them a little bit. First Kings chapter 20, we find ourselves in a story where um, Ahab is in a desperate situation okay? Ahab is a king. He is wicked and he has done terrible things to God's people and God's law. He has been horrible. Yet God preserves him against uh, this guy named Ben-Hadad. And he, God literally saves him and preserves him through the word of a prophet. And and Ahab is, is um, the kingdom is saved by the obedience of Ahab, and you would think maybe his heart would soften to the Lord, but it doesn't. He turns out just to be this repulsive, spoiled, entitled little, just a snot-nosed brat of a king because we find him being freshly saved by God and a prophet's word saying, do this and you're, you will live, and he does. And then we find him walking out of his palace, and looking on the vineyard of a guy named Naboth. And this is what it says in 1 Kings chapter 21. It says this. Sometime after after the, the battle and all these things, there was an incident involving a vineyard belonging to Naboth, the Jezreelite. The vineyard was in Jezreel, close to the palace of Ahab. King of Samaria. So he had a vineyard in the right neighborhood, right? He lived in Brentwood. Um, But uh, Ahab said to Naboth, let me have your vineyard to use it as a vegetable garden since it's close to my house. In exchange, I will give you a better vineyard um, or if you prefer, I will pay you whatever it is worth. So he's trying to make a business deal. You can't fault the guy for that, right? He's out wandering around his palace and he sees something closer um, and he wants that. And Naboth says, The Lord forbid that I would give you the inheritance of my ancestors. So Ahab went home sullen and angry. I love that. He's like, I wanted the vineyard. And he just like sulks home, slinks home, and he lays on the couch. And he refuses to eat. He goes on a hunger strike. And he's being such, oh, he's just so lame. I mean, this just this, his personality just pets the cat backwards for me. And he's just laying on the couch. He's like, oh. And Jezebel's like, what's the matter? What is the matter? Why do you look so sad? And he's like, I wanted Naboth's vineyard. And he said no. Now get what she does. She says, is this how the king of Israel should act? Get up, eat, and be happy. I'll get you the land. Everybody should be like, She is terrifying for what she's about to do. She's about to do something that is just horrible, and this is what it says. She went and wrote letters in Ahab's name. She placed his seal on those letters and sent them to the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth city with him. In those letters she wrote, proclaim a day of fasting and set Naboth in a prominent place among the people. But seat two scoundrels, opposite on either side of him, and have them bring charges that he has cursed both God and the king. Then take him out and stone him to death. So the elders and nobles who lived in Naboth's city did as Jezebel directed in the letters to the people. The two scoundrels came and sat opposite him and brought charges against him before the people saying, Naboth has cursed both God and the king. So they took him outside the city and they stoned him to death. Then they sent word to Jezebel, Naboth has been stoned to death. As soon as she heard that, Naboth was uh, dead she said to Ahab get up take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite that he refused to sell to you he is no longer alive but he is dead which you can almost be like for Ahab be like oh that seems quick like just she's excited this is good news to her get up and get your vineyard he's dead I've taken care of the problem." When Ahab heard that he was dead, he got up, went down, and took possession of Naboth's vineyard. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, a prophet, oh man, and he did not like Ahab in the same feeling back towards uh, between the two of them. Go down, meet Ahab, king of Israel, who rules in Samaria, God said. He is now in Naboth's vineyard, where he has gone to take possession of it. Say to him, this is what the Lord says. Have you not murdered a man and seized his property? Then say to him, this is what the Lord says. In the place where dogs licked up Naboth's blood, dogs will lick up your your blood. Yes, yours. Now we need to understand. Even to this day, in in that culture, in the in the culture of the Middle East, dogs are just such. Like we have we have dogs in our home. We love our dogs. They'll lick us. and be like, oh, and eh, now you know, like Nana, our dog will just sit next to me and just oh, oh, and breathe on my face, and I just want to like, go away and her pants. But um, but we love our dogs, right? In this culture, dogs were they are scavengers. They are mangy. I don't know if you've ever seen a third world dog, but think that little dragon dogs they are not cute cuddly little things it is a rough existence they're scavengers and they are the lowest of the food chain and and people hated them to be called a dog was probably the greatest insult you could level against someone so to tell a king a dog would lick up his blood is just i mean not only will he not be buried but he will be he will be eaten by the lowest of all like um scavengers so it's super bad word of the lord for him and Ahab says to Elijah in return, so you have found me, my enemy. I have found you, he answered, Elijah said, because you sold yourself to do what is evil in the eyes of the Lord. He says, I, the Lord says, I'm going to bring disaster on you. I will wipe out your descendants and cut off from Ahab every last male in Israel, slave or free. I will make your house like that of Jeroboam, Jeroboam son of Nebat. And that of Basha, son of Ajahiah, Ad- Ad- because you have aroused my anger and have caused Israel to sin. And also concerning Jezebel, dogs will devour her by the wall of Jezreel. I mean, that is like a thundering word of the Lord. All these things that God said would happen, ended up coming true. If you read on in the book of Kings, first and second Kings, you find out that literally all they found of Jezebel was a hand. That's how much the dogs ate. I think they all got sick, by the way. But um, but that's pretty dark. All the word of the Lord was fulfilled on this. But really, let me ask you this question. From my opening kind of illustration, what's the sleeping bag? What's the essential thing that God says, make sure you pack this? I would say this, it's humility. Humility is the thing that it's essential to our survival in Christian life. It is essential for us to be people who are humble. God hates Haughty eyes. God hates arrogance and pride. He despises it. I will say this: He has destroyed it in my life and worked through things in me to remove time and again from me the thing that grows so naturally—my pride, my self, like my self-confidence, my sense of self-entitlement. All these things. God does this because He hates it. Do we care? Do we care that God? Finds this vile. I think we should care. And I think the question is um, how are we going to respond? I think the best way to respond is to look back at this story out of 1 Kings 21 and see how those six things that God hates are actually very evidently present in, in this story. And they are present, present in action, not in theory. They are acted upon and it happens. So here's the thing. Humility matters because it means we fear God. And fearing God allows us to um, remember that he is God, high and lifted up, and we are not. We are not God. And we can be confident in who he is. And when we're confident in who he is, even when our circumstances and our life feel like they're confounding and painful, we can live in the fear of God, knowing that even through these ruins, God will be at work. Even through the good things, God will be at work. God will accomplish his purposes, And when we live in the fear of the Lord, we remember that he is God and we are not. And we have a limited viewpoint and a limited understanding. Humility keeps us in the right posture. When when we fear the Lord, we do not justify behaviors that God hates. Hear that word. We do not justify behaviors God hates. When we live in the fear of the Lord, we, we literally... We'll not be like, well, that's okay because, you know, they hurt my feelings. Or, I've worked hard and I deserve that. God won't allow it. God will work that out of us when we live in the fear of the Lord. So, there are six things the Lord hates. Seven that are detestable to him. One, haughty eyes. Haughty eyes are detestable to him. Jezebel could not stand that there was something her husband, the king, wanted and he couldn't have. She was like, no, you're the king. You can have it. Take what you want, whatever the cost, whatever the blood price, you're king. And we can see in that that we do this in ways in our lives. Yeah, we may not go and kill a landowner, but we look around and think more highly of ourselves than others. I'll tell you this, there are many of us who hear the call to serve and care in the church and in our community and we never answer the call because we're better than that. Well, I'm not gonna do that, I mean, come on, you know. I'm not, it's not me. Why? Why isn't it you, why isn't it me? If you're too good for something, If you're too good for some form of service or to associate with a certain kind of people, you need to recognize there's a haughtiness that lives in you that is literally a direct relation to what lived in Jezebel. And it did not work out well. We need to hear the warning of God. He hates haughty eyes. And if there's something in you that says, I'm better than them, I'm better than that, I'll never, you know, do this act of service. I'll never, whatever it may be, whatever it may be, if you refuse to serve because you're above it, I wanna tell you something. You are living in a dangerous place of arrogance that God detests. The second thing is this, a lying tongue, God hates a lying tongue. So what did Jezebel do that displayed this? It says, when Ahab had told her that what he, he couldn't have Naboth's vineyard, she said, I'll get it for you. She walked out and she wrote letters in his name and she signed them with his seal. What does that mean? She completely falsified her own character to pull something off. She assumed an identity that wasn't her own. She lied, yes, to get her husband what he wanted, but she used an alias to do so, and in doing so, she lied. She was lying just to find a way to fix her situation, and in fixing her situation, she was destroying the lives of others by lying. She was broadening the net by which destruction would come. She was now beginning to implicate other people, the elders and the nobles of their town. Two scoundrels, right? She was lying and trying to get something to happen. And it declares two things. First, when we lie, it declares we do not trust God and that he will not redeem, even if the truth is painful, he won't redeem out of us something wonderful. So we need to hear that lying is never okay. It is not okay to fudge the truth, to shade the corners. We cannot stand and lie and think that God doesn't notice. We can't think that we'll take matters into our own hands and find our own solution. There's nothing of God in that. God is truth and He is life. A lying tongue is something He hates. Speaking the truth is very costly, you will lose friends you will lose relationships, but you will gain the trust and respect of people around you. They will know that you are dependable because you speak the truth. So when we look at this, we realize that Jezebel easily had a lying tongue. That woman had it on, it was on the tip of her tongue. She could kick it out so quick it was frightening. The next thing is this, hands that shed innocent blood. The nobles and the men involved are quick to shed innocent blood. She broadened the net, invited the nobles and the elders in, these two scoundrels, to sit on either side of Naboth. Nabal, uh, not Nabal, Naboth. Um, Nabal's next week, but we'll talk about him next week. Um, Naboth, um, but they sat on either side and then they did something that's actually forbidden. It's in the 10th Commandment. You shall not bear false witness. That's what they did. They bore false witness. They said, he cursed God and the king. And when you have one uh, person who accuses you and then you have a second person who accuses you according to Jewish law, they were guilty. They took him out and killed him that day. And they were quick to shed innocent blood. Do not let yourself off the hook like Jezebel probably did. She could have said, hey, as far as I can tell, I don't even have dirt on my hands from the stones that hit him, innocent, no blood here Don't let yourself off the hook. If you've been out there murdering someone's character, assassinating someone's integrity, and then thinking to yourself, I got no blood on my hands. I didn't pull a trigger. I didn't do anything. What Jezebel did in this was she not only was quick to help someone else shed innocent blood, she caused other people to do it. She brought people into her sin. And she brought them into something that was, um, it was like lying. When you lie, you, you, don't, you don't fear God. When you shed innocent blood, there's no fear of God in that. And they think that in some way, God doesn't care that, um, that they were behind the scenes pulling the strings. So what we have to do is we have to remember one truth. God cares about your heart. Jesus said, if you hate someone in your heart, you've already committed murder. He says that in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. You can read that. What he's saying is in this, be careful of what you let live in here. Because if it lives in here, it will come out. Don't let that murderous hatred live in there. Confess it, repent of it, run away from it. Don't give it a small, dirty, dank apartment to live in. We have to understand, God cares about our heart. If you delight in someone else's ruin, in someone else's loss, in someone else's hurt, I want you to hear this. And I don't care if you know them or don't know them. If you delight in the hurt and ruin of someone else, your hands aren't clean. We can't sit back and delight in the heartache of people and the loss that they face. What we see in this is she, Jezebel, inspired people who were quick to shed innocent blood, the fourth thing that God hates is a heart that devises wicked schemes and feet that are quick to rush into evil. Did you notice how quickly Jezebel made up her plan? She's like, Are you sad? Here's my idea for killing Naboth. And just like she went at it, it was so quick. It happened almost instantly. The plot was a success. And she rushed back to Ahab like, dude, I totally got your vineyard. Naboth is dead. The dogs are licking the blood up right now. You're golden, man. Go get your veggies on. Go grow some carrots, Ahab. Right? It looks really weird and dark. She rushed into it almost effortlessly. A heart that devises wicked schemes says it knows better than God, says that it has more control than God and it can do whatever it wants and believes God isn't actually watching or seeing or caring. And that is a lie from the pit of hell. Do we do this? Do we find ways to undercut people? Do we find ways to rush off into judgment to get more for ourselves, to take from others, to promote a personal agenda or desire without doing as we were called to do. To love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and love our neighbor as ourself. That is the antithesis of what we see happening in Jezebel's life. She is quick to devise a scheme and execute her plans. Do we do these things to other people's demise, even in subtle ways? Maybe at home, maybe at work, maybe it's in your school. Subtle little words that build, um, you know, kind of questions about someone's character, and you can kind of, kind of impugn them a little bit, right? You can make people doubt about them, and don't think that isn't a good tactic. It's the tactic the devil used in the very first temptation. Did God really say? Just create doubt about their character. We do this all the time. It's wicked schemes, and we rush. Into evil, and we need to be careful, and we need to see that God notices. He does see the fifth and the sixth thing that God hates in this story, or in in Proverbs that we see in this story, is a false witness who pours out lies, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. This whole evil scheme revolved around someone creating a false narrative about a good person who saw his ancestral land as a promise from God. She didn't care that he was a good and faithful man Naboth she only cared that her husband get what he he wants and she'll do anything to do that and she ruined him for it and I will tell you this we as the church need to look at this and understand when we do subversive things to take control we are saying we don't believe God you're in control and we're willing to stir up conflict pour out lies about people falsely and here's the reality I've seen it happen to people I know and love even recently. I've had it happen to me. Here's the most disappointing revelation. I've done it to other people. I have said things to gain favor for myself and hurt other people. It's not something I'm proud of, but it's very true. And um, apart from Jesus Christ, I, like Paul, would say, I am the chief of sinners. And it's evident in this. We've got to look at it and understand That in doing these things, in creating doubt about someone's character, their motives, allowing lies to be told, and when you know it's not true, sitting back and being like, well, I don't want everybody to be uncomfortable. Trust me, them being uncomfortable is worth your character. Speaking up does really matter. Integrity matters because your integrity is linked to God's authority and sovereignty. And when we say, no, I can't allow that lie to go forward because I know that that's not true, I believe that even if you don't like me for speaking out, I will trust and put my future in God's hands, not your approval of me. That's just terrifying. Most of us don't wanna do that. But the reality is we can't allow lies, take part in lies, fudge the information that we have to gain or um, move uh, influence, or prosperity towards ourselves. God hates these things. We need to care about the fact that God hates these things. Are we humble before him? Or do we disregard his wisdom and believe that the fate of Ahab and Jezebel will never be shared by us? We would well, we're not those kinds of people. Or, Do you and I have a closer similarity to them than we'd like to admit? I would say it's the latter. I would say we need to get rid of the garbage in our bags that we've packed, throw it aside, and get the essential repacked. We need to put humility back into our lives. Proverbs fifteen thirty three: wisdom's instruction is to fear the Lord, and humility comes before honor. What is that telling us? Consider your example, church. We live in an age of fulfilled promise, in the age of Christ, and we need to know this, that in Christ we are are given an example of true humility and we can live into it. It's just very costly. One of my favorite passages in the whole world, it's from Philippians chapter 2 verses 5 to 11. It's called the Christological hymn. It's beautiful and it's our example for humility. It says this, In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not see equality with God as something to be used to his advantage or used for his gain. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in the likeness as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place, gave him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow on heaven above, in heaven above and on the earth below. And every tongue will confess to the glo- that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So what does that mean? It means we have a living example. The Lord Jesus Christ is our example. We are given this world's example of haughty eyes. Haughty eyes, the Jezebel look. But Jesus showed humility. He ate with sinners and tax collectors all the time, and the religious elite hated him. They wanted to eat with Jesus, they wanted to be in his group, they wanted his power and influence. Jesus didn't care about their power and influence. He cared about those who were far from God, and he ate with those who had nothing to offer. They were just broken and needed a savior. He didn't have haughty eyes. He didn't have a lying tongue. He spoke the truth in love. When the rich young ruler who had everything he, Jesus could have wanted to financially kind of bankroll his ministry, when the rich young ruler came to Jesus, Jesus said, sell everything you have. Give it to the poor and come with me. I mean, that is truth. And it says that when he looked at the rich young ruler, he loved him. He wanted him to come near, but he didn't want all his net worth but he had to speak a hard word and it says, the rich young ruler walked off and he was very sad. Jesus speaks the truth and he speaks life. The question is, will we listen and obey? Hands that shed innocent blood. Jesus shed his blood for us as the apostle Paul said. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for you and for me. The next thing we see A heart that devises evil schemes. Jesus offers hope. In the midst of an evil scheme, the night when Jesus was betrayed, he sat with his disciples and he said, guys, in this world, you're gonna have so much trouble, but don't worry, I've overcome this world. In my father's house are many rooms and I'm gonna go there and I'm gonna prepare a place for you. If this were not true, I would not have told you. He told them there's more than what you see. Trust me, believe in me. This world will turn on you, but I will not. He offered hope on the darkest night they would ever have. I love that about Jesus. Feet that are quick to rush into evil. Jesus was quick to heal, to serve, and to help. He helped the lepers. The night he was betrayed, he washed the feet of Judas Iscariot and Peter who would deny him. Jesus served. He served constantly. He never rushed into evil. He rushed into serving And being present with people as he was their Lord and Savior. And finally, a false witness who pours out lies. Jesus, on the opposite end, forgave those who falsely accused him. Caiaphas, the high priest, stood at the foot of the cross and mocked him with the other priests. The the soldiers divided up his garments while his mother wept at his shattered body on the cross. And what did Jesus say? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. You want to know what humility is? I will tell you this. It can be condensed into one thing. It is costly. It is costly. But I will tell you this. It's essential. If you're a Christian, humility is who you are. To become like Christ is to become humble. My friends, may this essential be found in the bag you pack to walk this road of life. Lord Jesus Christ, walk with us, your church, as we navigate the paths to know what it is to be humble, to have humility, not some self-glorifying humility, but a humility that, um, well, it points to only one, you, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. In Proverbs, where we find these things, the Lord hates we see the things that God loves, as I kind of displayed at the end in, um, in Jesus's life. He shows us the true path to humility. He shows us the costly nature of humility. But here's the thing I love. The final, um, the final you know, thing that God hates is someone who stirs up conflict in a community. Someone who just stirs up conflict. I want you to imagine with me a person who was so aware of their own failing and they're dying on a cross next to Jesus and they realize the life they lived was wrong and they realize they're next to someone who can redeem it. I don't understand how this criminal who was crucified next to Jesus understood who Christ was, but he got it. And he asked Jesus, Master, would you remember me? when you come into your glory. And Jesus's last words to this man offered hope that hopefully will resound in you and I and echo through our lives. He said, surely today you will be with me in paradise. You will join me. He's the first convert. He's the first person to receive that at the moment of Christ dying his last word, his last, the last act of Christ was to bring unity and to say, you're coming with me. I will save you. In me, he, you have redemption. And that's my hope for you today. That in you, you know these other things exist. They are well-rooted. Sin is not what we do, it's who we are. It's not what we do, it's who we are apart from Christ. But in Christ, we are righteous. So today, my hope is this that you will grab onto Jesus, and slowly but surely, all the things that God hates will be worked out of your life, and the wonderful, beautiful elements of humility will come to life in you, and the world will look at you, and they will see, and they will know by your words of hope, truth, love, affirmation, and challenge to bring the true gospel to the world. They will know You are very much like the one who saved you. You've been transformed into the image of Christ. May that be said of you. May that be said of me. May that be said of all of us who claim Christ as Savior. May our humility be part of our great transformation into his image. And as you go from this place, living in submission to the conviction of the Holy Spirit to be transformed into the image of Jesus, may the Lord bless you. May the Lord keep you. May the Lord cause his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord turn his face towards you and give you his peace. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Friends, grace and peace to you as you go today.